to open our Bible and let's go to the book of Acts, chapter number 2. The book of Acts, chapter number 2. I want to minister this morning from the topic, Things That You Can Expect in the Last Days. Things That You Can Expect in the Last Days. Acts chapter 2, beginning with verse number 16. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass that in the last days, saith God, I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and on my handmaidens I will pour out in those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood, fire, vapor, smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before that great and notable day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord, shall be saved. You will notice in verse 17 that you have that little phrase, the last days. Now this is a concept that goes all the way back to Genesis 49. In fact, listen to verse 1 of that chapter. And Jacob called unto his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you that which shall befall you in the last days. Now at this time, Jacob was in the country of Egypt. This was a world that was not his, and he was a pilgrim and a stranger, and yet he had foresight. God told him some things that would happen in the future with regard to his children. That kind of insight doesn't come to everybody. He didn't have foresight about the country of Egypt, but he did have some extraordinary information about his children. And when we think about the last days, this is a period of time that God knows all about and he is able to speak to people in advance. Now, God is omniscient, and he can give advance notice to people of things that are going to happen before they happen. In Genesis chapter 15, we learn that Abram heard from God, and God said, your children are going to Egypt, and they'll be there for four generations. That was 400 years a generation being a century. And we also discovered that in Deuteronomy 3.18 that the children of Israel were going to move into the promised land. They had their own struggles. They'd been in the wilderness for 40 years, but yet God knew that they were going into the promised land, and this was fulfilled through Joshua, just like the prophecy that Abram was fulfilled through Joseph. In Jeremiah 31, it says, one day there'll be a new covenant. And he said, God's going to write his laws inside of our hearts. And Jeremiah lived some 600 years before Jesus was born, and the new covenant was fulfilled in the ministry and the life and death of our Savior, Jesus Christ. So I want you to see that God has advanced notice, and he gives it sometimes to people regarding what's going to happen. In Isaiah chapter 2, as well as Micah chapter 4, it shows us that two prophets can live in different areas and yet receive the same prophecy. And the word they received was that the mountain of the Lord was going to be the, the area to where the nations would flock and God would lift up Zion in the last days. And sometimes God does reveal the same thing to different people. Revelations of the last day are all throughout Scripture. You may not have ever thought of it this way, but 
when Adam and Eve sinned, God said to them, the seed of the woman will bruise the head of the serpent. That's Genesis chapter 3. From Genesis 3 all the way to Revelation 22 is the fulfillment of that one prophecy. That is to say that this book here is a book of prophecy. Had Adam and Eve never sinned, your Bible will only be two pages long or two chapters long. But because they sinned, everything is about dealing with the issue of iniquity, bringing about the process of redemption, bringing Jesus into the world in order to bring about the end of the age. This is a book of prophecy. It speaks to us about what we can expect in the last days, and it gives us clear insight regarding what's going to happen. And Jesus obviously had an eye for the end of time. You can look at Matthew 24, Mark 13, or Luke 21. And you'll see that Jesus was in the temple with his disciples, and the people were coming to bring their tithes and offerings. And an elderly lady put in more money than everybody else, even though she was poor. And Jesus said, this poor woman did cast in out of her poverty. She's given more than everybody else. When they exited the temple... The disciples were admiring the beauty of the temple, the big white bricks and stones. And Jesus looked at them and said, this temple one day is going to be thrown down. There won't be one rock left upon another. And the disciples were wondering, what in the world is he talking about? This temple, I mean, already it's not even complete, and they've been working on it for nearly five decades. And they asked Jesus three questions. When will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming? And when will the end of the world take place? And in Matthew 24, Jesus spends a large amount of time explaining the answer to these three particular questions. And all of this occurred on the Mountain of Olives, as the Bible calls it. The Mount of Olives. This was the place where olives were crushed. This is the place where through the crushing process, the olives yielded forth that oil that so many people in ancient times and so many people in present times still use to this day. Every bottle of olive oil that you use to cook with has gone through a process that has basically taken those olives and destroyed it so that they would provide something useful. I don't think there's any other teaching or doctrine in my mind that inspires holy living or zeal for God like the coming of the Lord. Everybody in here knows that. We've heard of the coming of the Lord since we were kids. That is, if you were raised in church. But if we honestly believe that Jesus was going to come back in the next five minutes, I know that everybody in here would be so glad if I would stop talking. Because you would all want to build an altar out of that pew where you're sitting. You'd want to turn and get on your knees or lay in the presence of God. There's nothing that inspires holy living like a belief that he's coming. Those old preachers used to preach it strong. And they proclaimed it like they thought Jesus was coming in the midst of their message. And they preached it with conviction, with the understanding that when Jesus returns and cracks the skies, that wonderful things are going to take place for the church, but terrible things are going to take place down here on planet Earth. But the average person today lives their life without any provision that Jesus might one day come back. We don't think about it. It's not often preached. It's not often taught. People don't read about it too often in Scripture. But at some point on that mountain of olives, Jesus had his disciples there, and as he was speaking with them, a great miracle took place. Suddenly he began to levitate. The Bible says he started going up and up and up, and pretty soon the clouds captured him. He disappeared. But as he was going up, his final words were, Stay in Jerusalem until you're endued with power from on high. Then he disappeared. And as he looked into the heavens, 
angels appeared on planet earth and said to the disciples, why are you gazing up into the skies? The same Jesus that went up will be the same Jesus that returns. Well, once Jesus departed, the apostles continued his beliefs and his teaching, and you can see in Acts chapter 2 that Peter is standing up on the day of Pentecost trying to explain this wonderful outpouring of the Holy Spirit because 120 people have been speaking with other languages that they had not known personally. But under the inspiration and the divine utterance of the Holy Ghost, they're talking with tongues and, and all kinds of slurs and slanders and accusations are being made. Folks are saying they're drunk. People are saying they've got problems. These people are crazy. And Peter stands up, and as you can see in verse 16, he lets them know these folks have not been drinking. It's only 9 o'clock in the morning. He says to them, Joel prophesied about these things some eight centuries before today. He said 800 years before this occurred, Joel the prophet opened up his mouth and began to declare these things were going to happen. And you can see in verse 17, and it shall come to pass in the last days. And Peter is quoting Joel chapter 2. And his citation of Joel follows it pretty much word for word. So Peter was a Bible man. And Peter understood what the scriptures say. So here then is the question, when did the last days begin? Well, Hebrews chapter 1 says that God at sundry times and in different ways has spoken to us in these last days through his son, Jesus. So when Jesus came and began to preach, when Jesus lived and died and was resurrected, that period began what we know of as the last days because the author of Hebrews, who I take to be Paul, he says, in these last days. Now what Joel saw 800 years before, he understood he's referencing a later period. That's why Peter is citing him now. This is a prophecy that gives us clear explanation about what we can expect until the end of the world, what we can expect in these days. So let me give it to you. It says in verse 17, In the last days I pour out of my spirit. The day of Pentecost, the beginning of Acts chapter 2, formed the first outpouring of the Holy Ghost that we have recorded in accordance with Joel's chapter, Joel's prophecy. And then if you look at verse 20, you can see where verse 20 then gives us the date of expiration when all of these things will cease to happen. There won't be any dreams, any visions, any prophecies, any outpourings, any salvations. What's the date of expiration according to verse 20? That great and notable day of the Lord. When is that? In Revelation chapter 6, it tells us that when the sixth seal is opened, that there will be a great earthquake, the sun will be turned into darkness and the moon will become like blood. And it's at that final time frame that Jesus comes to judge all of the earth. He'll come. Until the outpouring, I should say from the outpouring, until this great and notable day of the Lord. There are certain things that are going to continue until that time. You say, what's going to continue to happen? Verse 21, people are going to continue to be saved. Any time a person becomes a Christian and is redeemed out of sin and changes their life and really has a mind change, a heart change, and a behavior change, having repented of their iniquity, and embrace the shed blood of Jesus Christ and the justification by faith that only comes by knowing him when that happens. That's the fulfillment of a prophecy here in verse 21. It shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That could be in America. That could be in Papua New Guinea. 
This can happen in the Scandinavian countries of Denmark and Sweden. This can happen in Europe. This can happen in the jungles of the Amazon. This can happen in the midst of Germany. This can happen in the Micronesian islands. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And the day you yourself became a genuine Christian, you became a part of the fulfillment of Bible prophecy. Whether you understood it, whether you even believe it now, your new birth is an outstanding type of the fulfillment of prophecy. And every day that you live on this earth, I can promise you, Joel saw the day when you'd be saved. Peter saw the day when you'd be saved. God proclaimed the day through his servant. When you'd be saved. How many of you are excited about salvation? He saves anybody. He can change anybody's life. There's never been a man or woman so deeply entrenched in sin that God couldn't reach down and lift them up and change their life. They could have been sexually abused. They could have been stuck in alcoholism. They could have had drugs in their veins for 30 years. But in a moment's time, he can save them. That's salvation. That's prophecy. So from the beginning then... God already knew that there would be immediate lifestyle changes. And the beauty of salvation is that this isn't some long, progressive thing that takes place over a period of months. You can be changed immediately, immediately. And that's what happened here. Now, he also prophesied what will be the means of it, the name of the Lord. So Joel saw before Jesus' birth that that name would be the means or the tool by which salvation would come. You've heard me give my testimony many times. I wasn't raised in a Christian home, but by chasing after a young lady in junior high school, I came to know Christ as my Savior, and the moment I called on the name of Jesus, all of my sins disappeared. I became as innocent and as pure as a newborn baby. Yeah. And that name is available to any of us that are in here right now. You can't think of a person who cannot be saved. And you can't think of someone for whom the name of Jesus will not work. Because the prophecy says right up to the end, this name is going to be powerful. So, Pastor, what then should we do? Introduce people to Jesus. Introduce people to that name. Let people know about the cross and, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and help them to see that your life is a beautiful, sterling example of a trophy of God's grace. And however imperfect and flawed you are and I am, we still are a testimony that God can take anybody and lift somebody up and make them an example if they want to be one. Or you can spend your time looking in the mirror being unhappy with who you are, telling everybody that God hadn't done anything to help you at all. He's done a lot to help you. Follow the book. Yeah. So according to this, you can expect in the last days that people are going to be saved. Now, several months ago, we had a man here in the pulpit, and you saw a video, his travels in Pakistan, 600, 700,000 people in one meeting. You saw in the, in, the, in the video where in one service, over 120,000 people stood to their feet to become a Christian. Who could have ever imagined that such a thing could happen? Joel saw it. And God foresaw it. And God had his servants talking about it. All over this earth, salvation is a powerful thing, and you are constantly hearing stories of people that have been born again. I thank God for the Billy Grahams that preached in stadiums across, this, across the world and around the world. I thank God for the meetings Jimmy Swaggart had back in the 80s, 70, 80,000 people out there. I praise God for the meetings that are still being held out in parks and in playgrounds, in urban areas where you have 50 people, a couple of hundred people coming to hear the Word of God. But I know that every time it happens, it's the fulfillment of prophecy. Every time. Now, what else can we expect in the last days? Notice verse 17 again. I'll pour out of my spirit upon all flesh. This is to say that you can expect 
sons and daughters, male and female, to experience what they experienced at the beginning of Acts chapter 2. The mighty baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's not limited to one gender. It's not all across this world. There have been tremendous outpourings of God's Spirit. People that are hungry, they say, God, I, I want more of you. I want to surrender more of my life to you, God. God, I want to open my heart to you in a greater way. Lord, fill me, baptize me, touch me, do for me what you did for the people in the Bible. And God, by his mighty power, can do just that. And every time I've seen someone filled with the Holy Spirit and another language come out, I know I'm dealing with prophecy. These are the last days. Just a few days ago in the service, I had a young man listening to me preach. He came down for the altar call. He said, I want God. Fill me with the Holy Spirit. Tears were streaming down his face. I read to him a few verses, and I told him, this is what you can expect when I lay my hands upon you. And then once I was done, I said to him, what's going to happen to you when I touch you? He said, God's going to fill me. I said, and then what's going to happen when you're filled? He said, another language is going to come out of me. I laid my hands on his head, and within 20 seconds, another language began to come out of him. As God baptized him in the Holy Ghost, all in fulfillment of the Scripture. The Bible, you see. Now I realize that there are people today, some even in this town, that will say, well, I do believe Jesus is saving people today, but the possibility of dreams and visions and baptisms of the Holy Spirit, those things ceased with the last apostle. And then my question would be, who are you to pick and choose and cherry pick the points in this prophecy that are still occurring and the ones that are not occurring? As long as Jesus is saving people, he's filling people. And as long as he's filling people, He's confirming the prophecy that Joel gave. And so we should never, ever turn our backs on the truth of God's Word. Yeah. It's a beautiful thing, folks. Beautiful thing. Well, consider this then. He says, your young men shall see visions. Older people are going to dream dreams. That tells me that, that, that right up to the end, both old and young should be having supernatural experiences with God. Deliver yourself from the idea that being a Christian is supposed to be boring. Get it out of your head that once you become elderly, God's not doing anything with you. Or if you're younger, just because you run with young people that are part of a church that says God doesn't do this, don't limit your faith to what other young people are saying. Believe that God is a supernatural God. And expect God to do wonderful things for you because miracles are powerful. They can happen in dreams and in visions. Reinhard Bonnke for years traveled across Africa. Spent five decades preaching the gospel in that continent. He was a German man. But you know what happened? He, he went to sleep one night, had a dream. And in the dream, he saw the continent of Africa on the map. And then he saw, suddenly saw what looked like blood just being splashed all over the continent of Africa. And he heard the words that came to him in the vision that said, All Africa shall be saved. He had that dream three nights in a row. Three nights. Well, he moved from Germany to South Africa, started street preaching. From street preaching, started pastoring, from pastoring, bought a small tent, start holding meetings. From that small tent, eventually he had a tent seating 34,000 people, the largest tent in the world. But the tent grew too small. He kept traveling, kept preaching, kept ministering the Word of God. And suddenly at the end of his meetings when he prayed for people, then suddenly he had blind people, crippled people, and all these other people being healed. He held a meeting in Lagos, Nigeria, back, I think, in the late 90s or so. One million people in an outdoor salvation crusade. Can you imagine all of Nebraska out in a field somewhere? His speakers hoisted up 300 feet in the air. 
speakers that were 30 feet tall, 15 feet wide, that would span from here to the other side of the cemetery over there to move all of that for every crusade cost him about $150,000. A fleet of trucks to carry all of that. But all of that started with a dream. Before he died several years ago, or a couple of years ago, it said more than 50 million people raised their hands saying they wanted to be Christian all over Africa. And then you tell me some little preacher somewhere says God doesn't speak to people in dreams and visions anymore. No wonder that preacher hadn't seen anybody saved in a long time. God talks supernaturally. He can communicate any way that he wants. And once he starts talking, he doesn't stop talking until you hear what he has said and obey what he has said. Yeah. We just had two girls came back from Peru. And we'll hear the testimonies tonight. But while we were in Texas, I was reading some of the Facebook stuff they put up there and then sent screenshots of that to me. A good friend of mine goes to Central America and Latin America and holds crusades, six and 7,000 people preaching the gospel. So we sent two of the girls from down in Hebron because I wanted them as young people to experience this for themselves. I mean, I know as a pastor, I know what my limitations are, I know what my abilities are, but we, we sent them and they went to Peru, and I mean, they're showing me pictures of them riding on the Amazon River and all of this, and all of, you know, just amazing things, witnessing on the street, people coming to know the Lord, but, but they told of how, oh my goodness, they say, Pastor, there was a man in a wheelchair, thousands of people out there, they prayed the prayer, and the man was healed and got up out of the wheelchair. Had never seen anybody blind, eyes open. And somebody wants to say that in the days in which we live, God doesn't answer prayer. I just say God answers a lot of prayers. Just because God doesn't answer your prayer doesn't mean God doesn't answer prayer. And if God hadn't saved everybody in your family, that doesn't mean God's not saving people today. I'm telling you, he's a savior, he's a baptizer, he's a dream giver, he's somebody that goes out of his way to do miraculous things, and I want our young people here to experience it. I want them to know about the power of God, the anointing of the Holy Spirit, and the very presence of God, so they won't grow up and spend their lives just thinking religion is something for old people. And it's something that you do when you get old and you don't have anything else to do but go to church. Walking with God should be an exciting thing. should be passionate. And so this is what the prophecy says. In the last days, that's the days in which we're living right now. In the last days, I'll pour out in those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. What is it to prophesy? To minister the word of the Lord. To give by divine utterance the mind of God, and to speak it forth with a thus saith the Lord. I understand that there's a small element of preaching involved with that, but I'm not talking about preaching. I'm talking about when the Spirit of God comes on someone, and you minister in prophecy, the divine, supernatural, yeah. When that occurs, the Scripture says it's edifying for the people that hear, and they understand the truth of what God is saying because it's not confusing to them. Prophecy. Well, sometimes in a service there could be prophecy and utterance that comes forth that is designed to encourage and strengthen the congregation. And when prophecy is ministered the right way, it is equal to a tongue and its interpretation. Because if all you had were a bunch of people speaking in tongues, in a church service, nobody ever told anybody what was being said. How in the world could you be edified by that? If I said to all of you right now, bow your heads and let's pray, and then I start praying in Arabic, and then at the end I said, okay, let's say amen. How are you going to say amen if you don't know what I said? You can't say I agree if you don't know what I said. But if, if there's an interpretation to the tongue, then the tongue and the interpretation are the equivalent of a prophecy. And a prophecy is designed to strengthen, encourage, and build you up. 
And there's been plenty of times, plenty of times through the years here, we've given a tongue or interpretation or prophesied plenty of times in church service all, all across this nation where we've ministered with the gift of prophecy and seen the confirming hand of God at work in a person's life. And so again, we say all of this is fulfillment of the Scriptures. The Scriptures. Things that Joel saw. Now let me let me give you an, an example again related to prophecy and dreams and visions. I was in Paris, France in 1993, the spring of 93. And I was preaching. But I was still in the Marine Corps at that time, and I was at the, the library over there, and on my knees fell asleep, had a dream. In the dream, I saw myself on a mountain top, and on the mountain top looked like there's an angel standing here next to me, and looked to me like we're overlooking all of Palestine and Israel, just just a big, beautiful uh, perspective of all of that. And, and I'm staring at that, and I see smoke, and I see fire, and I just kind of just said, you know, out loud, it just seems like there's always something happening in Israel. And, and that angel in that vision said, there is always something happening in Israel. But he said, Israel and Palestine are about to be divided into two different states. And then I woke up. That was the spring of 1993. Well, by fall of that year, nobody knew, I know I didn't know, that Yasser Arafat and Yitzhak Rabin had been in secret discussions putting together a two-state solution for the land of Israel. And they announced it when they signed the Oslo Accords, and when they had them standing in front of Mr. Clinton, I said to myself, oh, my goodness, I saw this six months ago when I was in France. Yeah. Good thing for me, I typed it all out and put it down on paper so I knew that I would have it for later. But when somebody says to me, in these last days, God doesn't speak like that, God doesn't talk like that, I just simply say, He does. If He hadn't done that with you, I can't do anything about that. God is God. He speaks to all of us differently. But He will talk to us. He will talk to us. Now let me give you something else. Turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter number 4. This is some very interesting material. 1 Thessalonians. And you find Hebrews just start backing up. And I want you to listen to what Paul says. I just told you what Peter said in his prophecies. But let's consider what Paul says now. Chapter 4, verse 13. I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those which are asleep. That means those that have died that you sorrow not as others which have no hope, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them which also sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. Now, notice in verse 13, Paul makes it very plain that it's possible to be ignorant about what happens to people when they die. There are a lot of people don't know what happens when people die. When a man or woman dies who is a Christian, their spirit goes to be with the Lord in heaven. If you die without Christ, or people who have passed away without Christ, they do not go to heaven, they go to hell. And it does not matter whether or not a person says, I just can't believe that God would ever make a place like that, or a place of torment exists like that. It's not dependent upon whether or not you can conceive it or believe it. It exists. See, I could tell you right now that, that there's a lovely restaurant down in Dallas for people who love seafood, and it's called Papa Do's. Oh, my goodness, they've got the best gumbo you've ever had on this planet if you like gumbo. But you could come up to me and say, you know, Pastor, I heard you talking about that, but I just don't believe it exists. Well, I can tell you one thing, just because you don't believe it exists, that doesn't mean there are hundreds of people going there every day. That just means in your mind you don't believe what I'm saying. 
Paul here tells us he doesn't want us to be ignorant about people that pass away, and he doesn't want us to be like people who have no hope. When a Christian dies, we have the hope we go to be with Jesus. We will see him face to face, Christ in us, the hope of glory. Ephesians tells us that at one time we were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the promise of God in this world without hope. But when you have Christ, you have hope. Some of the funerals that I preached for unbelievers, I understand why they're weeping and crying the way they're weeping and crying. Because they know if this book is true, that decedent that didn't know God, he's in a place where he or she's never coming out of. I understand that weeping. I understand that kind of sorrow and crying. But for us to the Christians, when we lose a loved one who's a believer, we're not sorrowing because we don't have hope. We're crying because we lost someone we love. We'll see them again. They're a Christian. They, they have gone to be with the king. So in verse 14, Paul affirms the crucifixion. He says Jesus died. He affirms the resurrection. He rose again. He affirms the fact that they went to heaven because he says one day with Christ, they're coming again. So those three things you can see are mentioned in what Paul refers to with regard to the last days. Now notice in verse 15 he says, we which are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord. So until Jesus returns to catch away his church, there will be people believing in his crucifixion, his resurrection, and the fact that we go to heaven. That means that until the end of time, there will be people who believe that Jesus is coming again. Are you part of that company of people? Yes, we believe he's coming again. And other people who say, we don't think it's true, it's very unlikely to happen, it hasn't happened yet, so obviously it's a legend or a tale. The only thing we can say to them is, in Jesus' day, they didn't believe the Messiah was coming the first time. But I'm telling you, he's coming back again. Doesn't matter what anybody says, he's coming back again. Now notice then, in verse 17, it talks about those who are alive and remain, they'll be caught up together. Caught up together. That's the word, or I should say that's the phrase that we use to describe the rapture. What is a rapture? The rapture is the catching away of the saints. I'll explain Look at verse 16 again. The Lord himself shall descend from heaven. When Jesus was raised from the dead and he ascended from the Mount of Olives, he went to heaven. That is where he is right now. One day he's going to leave heaven and come back into this atmosphere and there's going to be a trumpet sound. And when the trumpet sounds, there's going to be a cry from the mouth of an angel. And when that happens, verse 17 says, We which are alive and remain shall be caught up. If that were to happen in the midst of this message, that means all of us in here that have had our sins washed in the blood of Jesus would disappear and be gone. Every baby is going to be gone. But unbelievers that have rejected Jesus are going to remain here. They'll be here. Because Hebrews says, To him that looks for his coming shall he appear a second time without sin unto salvation. So when I meet someone who tells me I don't believe in the rapture, I say, you don't have to worry about it. You're not going anywhere anyhow. But for us that are looking, he's coming. What's going to happen when Jesus comes? Jesus is going to receive the bride, all over this earth, supernaturally, it's called the mystery of the resurrection, all over the earth, when he comes from heaven, every Christian that has died, every Old Testament saint that had a covenant with the Lord, is going to descend into this earth realm, and they're all going back all around this globe into their grave sites, or places where they died. 
in 1 Corinthians 15 says those bodies are going to be reconstituted and suddenly they're going to put on immortality and receive a brand new form of body. And for the generation alive, we'll be down here walking and playing. Somebody might be playing basketball. Somebody might be flying a plane. Somebody might be driving a car. Somebody might be doing golf. Somebody might be playing a guitar. Somebody might be out in the field doing something on their tractor, and suddenly they all disappear. And the Scripture says all of us are called away to meet the Lord in the skies, and then we all go to heaven. We go back up to heaven. And then what happens? He walks over to the Father's throne. The Father's going to be holding a book that has seven seals. This is all in Revelation chapter 6. It's got seven seals. He opens up that first seal. And then the Antichrist is released. He's a man that looks like and acts like and thinks he's Jesus. And people are going to worship him. He's going to act like he's a person of power and authority. He will present himself as a man of peace. says all of that in Daniel. And the nations will chase after him. He opened up that second seal. There'll be a red horse rider. Start galloping through the earth. And, and he's there to take away peace. So that means there'll be wars all over the place. If you think there's a lot of warfare and tribal madness today, you wait till that second seal is open. Open up that third seal. There'll be, there'll be food shortages and imbalance with regard to, to uh, vegetation, famines. Open up that fourth seal. There'll be a pale horse rider, and the Bible says that pale horse rider is going to cause death amongst one quarter of the population of the planet. You think of how many people died during COVID. You wait till that fourth seal is open. Fifth seal is open. John looked, and he saw under the altar millions of souls of people that died. And the Bible says, the Lord said, this is going to continue until the end. So people that have lost their lives for the gospel, there's going to be people losing their lives during this period that we call the Great Tribulation when these seals are open. That sixth seal that I referred to earlier in the message will be the one that will be open on the last day when the sun is turned to darkness and the moon to blood, the great and notable day of the Lord. But none of us that are Christian will be here for that. We won't be here for these things. Now, how do I know that? Romans 5 and 9 says that we who have been saved have not been appointed to the wrath of God. You can look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9. For God has not appointed us to wrath, but obtained salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. If I took you to the final two verses of Revelation 6, you would see that the opening of the seals and all of that was the wrath of the Lamb. That is not for us that are Christians. We're not going to be here. And Paul tells us at the end of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 that we're to comfort one another with these words. Do you understand how significant these statements are for us who are living right now? There are plenty of people today that honestly don't believe Jesus ascended to heaven because they don't believe he was raised from the dead. And there are plenty of people who don't believe he's ever coming back. They say there's too much wickedness in the earth, and with such sin and iniquity, God obviously doesn't care. He does care. He does care. And it grieves him that there's sin in this earth. If, if you had a child and, and you were doing everything you could to monitor your child, I think every parent in here would still be able to testify that there, were, there was an occasion well, there were occasions where your child slipped away from your eyesight and was able to get into something that you didn't know they were going to get into that ended up being somewhat dangerous. Everybody knows that. But, but just because they slipped into that, that does not mean you didn't care. And just because we have rape and murder and theft and all of that in this world, that doesn't mean he doesn't care. He never wanted us to get involved with that. 
He's given us the ability to make choices and to make decisions. And just like kids sometimes, the decisions we make are wrong. And kids don't know what they're doing sometimes. But there are plenty of people in this world know exactly what they're doing. And that is why one day all of us are going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account for the things we've done in our body. For us that are believers, if it's all under the blood, you'll never hear about it again. You'll never see it again. And the only people reminding you daily of your past failures and your past sins are people who knew you when you were living that way, and the devil and all his demons that want to remind you of that to make you live in sin and condemnation and shame and guilt. God the Holy Ghost is not reminding you of those things. He's telling you you're a champion. He's telling you you're a warrior princess. He's telling you you're redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Roll your shoulders back over your hips and walk like a person with dignity and victory because one day the trumpet of God is going to sound and we're all going to be caught away. Can you say amen? It's going to be amazing. And for people who don't believe that, they can stay here and go through it all as far as I'm concerned. But the Bible says in Luke chapter 21, Blessed is he who is accounted worthy to escape all these things. Yeah. I didn't even give you all the details of the book of Revelation. I just quoted a few things out of chapter 6. I'm telling you, there's trouble coming to this earth. And when it arrives in this form, we'll be long gone. Long gone. Yeah. If, If you had a newspaper... For every town, city in the world, and they had them delivered to your house. Of course, your house wouldn't be big enough to hold them. But if you sat down and tried to read every one of them, you'd be dead before you ever got through one day of every newspaper from every town, everything around the world. In seven years of the Great Tribulation, there's going to be so much trouble compacted in that that people are going to be absolutely astonished that you can have that much warfare and bloodshed. The Bible talks about blood in some places being as high as the horse's bridle. talks about it taking months in one area just to bury the dead. How unemployment disappears, as it says in uh, Ezekiel, because so many people are going to be employed burying the people that have died. Can you imagine an economy not built on agriculture, but built on death? That's what the Bible prophesies. So for you and for me, it's worth our time to walk with God and know that one day we're going to hear that trumpet sound. Yeah, we're going to hear it. I'm sure that angel's standing by the throne of God, and he's staring at the Father, and he's just waiting for that signal so he can blow that trumpet. As soon as he blows it, folks, we're out of here. We're gone. We're out of here. And it's going to be a lovely time. And like I said, for the people that say they don't believe in it, they can stay here and have at it. But I don't want to see the Antichrist. not interested. Don't want to be down here for any opening of the seals and tribulation. Everybody else, according to their faith, be it unto them. But Pastor Darrell and his wife is catching the first airlift out of here. Yeah, we're gone. Let's stand. Praise God. Oh, yes. (laughs) All of us, folks, we are the fulfillment of prophecy. We are the fulfillment of prophecy. So here's how I want you to pray. I do want you to pray for your loved ones, that your loved ones would be saved, fulfilled prophecy. But I also want you to pray that God do for you what he did for the rest of those folks. There in Acts chapter 2. When you're laying there in that bed and I say, oh God, baptize me with the Holy Ghost the same way you did them people in that book. Do that for me, God. Oh, God, talk to me in a dream or a vision. I'm open, oh, God, for that. He can. Oh, God, help me to be a vessel of prophecy. Help me to be a a prophetic man or woman that walks with you and lives for you. God is strong enough to do that. 
But let's enjoy the last days because this is the only opportunity we have to resist the devil, and this is the only lifetime we have to walk in the grace and in the power of God because once we draw our last breath on the other side of that, there's no more of this fun. We've got a different kind of fun now. But, Father, we love you and we praise you. We thank you for an opportunity to be able to gather here in this place on the south end of town. We thank you, Lord, that we are part of the end times, that we are last days people. And, Father, I pray for our sheep that are here today, even for the ones that are not here. Lord, I pray as folks are driving down the road, let your presence fill the house. And by your power, God, let something wonderful begin to happen. Baptize them afresh, oh God. I pray, God, when our boys and girls and men and women put their head on the pillow for a sound night's sleep, oh God, invade their dreams and visions. Talk to them in ways they've never heard your voice before. And God, as you do these things, that will make us stronger, better, greater, as a congregation, as we walk with you, we honor you and we praise you. Folks, let's just take just a few moments and just worship God. Just a few moments. Father, we thank you today. We love you. There's no one like you in all of the earth, God. Your name is great in all of the earth. You are a Savior. You are a Deliverer. You are, oh God, the song of our heart. You're holy and wonderful, and we praise you now. That in these last days, God, you saw fit to bring us into the knowledge of your Son, Jesus. You reached down from glory and brought the gospel to our homes. God, thank you for loving us so much that we could come to the knowledge of Jesus. God, we remember what we were like before we were saved. We remember the mistakes and the sins that we made. But, Father, we glory in your great grace and your mercies and your loving kindness. Thank you, God to looking at these flawed, feeble vessels and knowing that you, God, could redeem us and make us all new, God. So, Father, as we praise you, we're ever so grateful. And if we had a thousand tongues, we could not thank you enough, God. Oh, God, we love you and praise you. In the mighty name of Jesus Christ, Hallelujah. Isn't salvation wonderful? To know him. To know him. Yeah. Folks, he's coming. I don't know when, but I'm telling you. He's coming. And I just want to be ready when he comes, don't you? Amen. Amen. Praise God. Well, we love you. I think the announcement was made last uh last Sunday. Bible study won't pick up again until August just because of stuff that, that's going on, but I'll just be glad when we're just planted and won't have to move around too much again. But let's fellowship a little while. Praise God. Amen. Remember to be faithful in your giving, tithing, offering, receptacles to my left, to your right. Praise God.